Have you ever had the experience of reading a book or possibly watching a movie or even talking with someone on the telephone and then just when it appeared that you were at the most important part, whether that be the last chapter of the book closing most abruptly, the final scene of the movie ending without explanation, or even the telephone line simply going dead. You're left stunned, shocked. Initially, you don't think it could possibly end that way. It appeared that maybe someone goofed. They shouldn't have closed the event or the conversation in that fashion. Well, beloved, this is precisely what many people think about the ending of Mark's gospel. If you would, turn to Mark chapter 16, and I'll show you what I mean. Even though we read for our public scripture reading the entire chapter of Mark 16, it might shock you to know that I believe that the end of Mark's gospel actually occurs with Mark 16, 8. It is probably the case that in most of your Bibles, from verses 9 to 20, you have brackets. And some of your Bibles may even have a marginal note affixed to verse 9, that says that verses 9 to 20 are actually not a part of the earliest manuscripts of the Greek texts of Scripture. As my NASB Bible does say in the marginal note, it speaks of these verses having been added later to the later Greek manuscripts. And because of these things, you may or may not be aware that the closing of this particular gospel, the gospel of Mark, has received considerable criticism, debate. Because people just can't believe that Mark chose to end his account not only of all of the ministry of Jesus, but certainly the resurrection of Christ, with verse 8. Listen to it. They went out and fled the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Doesn't that seem very strange to you, to end your gospel account right there? for they were afraid. It's almost like the movie needs an ending. It's almost like someone was cut off the telephone conversation from you. It's almost like you're reading the last chapter of the book and the last page has been ripped away. For they were afraid is the last phrase of Mark's gospel. In fact, even in the Greek text, 
the word for is the last actual Greek word that appears in that text. That doesn't seem to me like the right ending of the Gospel of Mark. For, for they were afraid. Seems certainly a strange way to end this Gospel narrative. It's as though the last verse of the last chapter of Mark's Gospel ends much too abruptly. It's as though you're watching a movie of the life of Christ. He's gloriously resurrected. Mary Magdalene and the other women are astonished and amazed, fear gripping them. And then Mark says, that's it. I finished writing. You almost say that there has to be something more, John Mark. And it may have even been that someone, somewhere later, thought exactly that. And so, we find in our Bibles, although in brackets, verses 9 to 20. Someone may have thought that very thought. It can't end like this. It can't end with the glorious concept of the resurrection of Jesus Christ with his followers being afraid, almost as it were like they were standing with feet in place, not being able to move one in front of the other, gripped, astonished, shocked. There has to be something more. What do we make of this? How do we respond to this? And you yourself, when you gave the Scripture reading a moment ago, you implied at least that we were reading Scripture. And it may even be true, beloved, that some of you believe that Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20 is a part of Scripture. And I certainly don't want you to assume that I'm playing fast and loose with the Scripture. I think that you'd be under the right assumption if you believed that this being the 102nd message in the Gospel of Mark is evidence that I'm not attempting to play fast and loose with the Scripture. I would dare say that anybody who would not have a strong a stand on Scripture and its inerrancy would go through 102 messages on the Gospel of Mark. They probably wouldn't go through that many messages in any one book. And so why do I believe that verses 9 to 20 should not be considered a part of Scripture? Well, this morning I'm going to give you, probably in about 10 or 15 minutes, four reasons. Four reasons why I don't believe that verses 9 to 20 are a part of Holy Scripture. Now I know some of you are thinking, great, a 15-minute sermon. Oh, I have much more to say. Much more to say after that. In fact, so much more to say, I can't finish Mark's gospel in 102 messages. I'm going to need one more. But that's okay. I think we're going to find some things that are tremendously important for us as we wrap up this gospel. Hence the title, What Have We Really Learned? Mountain Peak Principles from the Gospel of Mark. But I certainly couldn't just pass over verses 9 to 20 without some level of comment. 
Because if I were to end my preaching of the Gospel of Mark at verse 8, as we did last time, and then simply go into mountain peak principles surveying the entire book as we sort of wrap everything up, no doubt somebody's going to come to me and say, but what about verses 9 to 20? You didn't exposit those at all. Why not? And so I'm going to at least give you, at the outset here, four reasons why I don't believe that this particular section of Mark 16 is really a section of Mark 16. All right? Number one. Number one. The first and most important reason why I don't believe that this is a part of Scripture and yet it's important for us to understand why we don't believe that, is because of this. The earliest and most reliable Greek manuscripts of Mark's Gospel do not contain this section. The most reliable and indeed the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have do not contain verses 9 to 20 of Mark 16. And I think that's a very important reason. Why? Because I believe that the key to restoring as an authentic a text as we can of our Bibles, of the New Testament, is to find those earliest manuscripts and be able to find what is there and what is not. Now, there is, admittedly, some translators, scholars, and they are every bit a translator and a scholar as anyone else, who believe that the key to understanding what we have in the Scripture, what should be there and what isn't there, is not the earliest manuscripts, but the most abundant manuscripts. In other words, they would theorize this. The Scripture, the real Scripture, the, the real text of Scripture, ought to be the ones in which the most manuscripts occur, because if, in fact, the most manuscripts give that as scripture, we ought to say, boy, that's important because they believed, whoever those people were, that the most contained the authentic. And they would be copying the most authentic documents over and over and over again. And so the key to finding the original text of the New Testament is to find those documents that are the numbers of documents that seem to be the same. That is commonly called, beloved, the majority text view which means you find the majority of texts and there you find the authentic text of Scripture because people back there knew what the original text was and so they would have then copied it over and over and over again so you find the most number of copies and there you have the best and most reliable texts of Scripture. Well, I don't agree. I agree that that is a way of trying to determine an authentic text, but I don't think it's the best way. I think the best way is to find the earliest versions of the Greek text of Scripture. Therein lies, I believe, the key to understanding the most authentic text that you could possibly find, the ones that are as close as possible to the original documents themselves, which are commonly called the autographs, the autographa. In other words, when God inspired the Scripture, when He breathed out of His own breath, His own mouth, the words of Scripture to which the Gospel writers, New Testament writers then penned by their human hands, that was the inerrant document. That was the inerrant autographs, the perfect autographs. They were absolutely perfect, no flaw whatsoever, flawless, clean, clear, crisp, perfect in every way. We don't have those autographs today. 
maybe one of the reasons why we don't have it is because if we had it, we'd probably try to worship it. But frankly, what we ought to be doing is we ought to be doing our work, and thank God for scholars and translators who are doing this, they're doing excavations, they're doing all kinds of things to uncover the earliest manuscripts because in my judgment, that gives us the key to going back as close as possible to the original autographs themselves. And since, very frankly, those particular early and reliable autographs, not the originals, but those, the direct copies of the autographs, those, in fact, I believe are the key to understanding whether or not verses 9 to 20 belong in our Bibles, and they don't have it. In fact, the two most reliable don't have it. And so, that's one reason why I believe verses 9 to 20 is to be rejected as a part of Scripture. Now, understand what I'm saying when I use the word reject. I'm not saying we ought to hack up the Bible. What I'm saying is, I don't believe that verses 9 to 20 is part of the Bible, so therefore, I believe it ought to be rightly set aside. Secondly, there's a second principle why I don't believe that verses 9 to 20 is a part of our Bible, and it is this. Just because Mark's ending statement appears abrupt, and it does, it doesn't automatically mean something is missing. Now, I think that's a very, very clear understanding of a very poignant point, and that is this. If this is the way Mark believed his gospel ought to end, then who am I to disagree with it? Well, someone might come along and say, but if it does seem abrupt, then doesn't that lead you to believe that something else should have been there? And I grant you that somebody probably thought that, and that's why they added verses 9 to 20. And if you read it carefully, verses 9 to 20, as we did this morning, you might find that it's really an amalgamation of Matthew and Luke. And so someone, whoever he may have been, it may have even been someone in the 4th century who added this portion believing that there needed to be some kind of conclusion because the ending was much too abrupt. But I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. If you were to read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8, as we did this morning, and even if you looked at verse 7 and then verse 8, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he was going ahead of you to Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. If you just read that as I did, you might think that would be abrupt, except we have more scripture to follow, don't we? And what we have in Scripture is the book of Acts. And if you were to turn to the book of Acts, which I'm asking you to do now, Acts chapter 1, you would find that even though Mark might tend to be seen or perceived as abrupt, if you were to add a comment from Luke in Acts chapter 1, you would in one sense find out why Mark ends his gospel the way he does and why Luke picks up in the book of Acts the way he does. In Acts chapter 1, he says in verse 1, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day he was taken up to heaven, and after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. In other words, Luke helps us fill in the gaps of what Mark ends his gospel with. And he's really saying, I'm going to pick up in the gospel account 
what the other gospel writers ended with. That's in essence what he's doing. He certainly does that in the gospel of Luke because Luke is the author of both Luke and Acts. In fact, even when you were to study commentaries on Luke and Acts, you would find that they even hyphenate them because it comes from the same author, Luke-Acts. One body of documentation in their minds. And so, you have Mary Magdalene and the other women being charged to tell the disciples. They put their feet in a solid place. They don't move one inch because they're astonished, they're afraid. But eventually, they do go and tell the disciples. Clearly, that's what we're told in other portions of the gospel accounts. And now, Luke is telling us that in a 40-day period, Jesus appeared to them. We know that's true because he appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, according to Luke 24. And when you put it all together, you find out that Acts is just continuing the dialogue. So it really doesn't mean that Mark ends so abruptly as though nothing is ever written or nothing is ever stated or nothing ever occurs in the life of Christ or in the life of the early disciples or the early church ever again. No, you have a very clear word. In fact, notice verse 6. So when they had come together, that is the disciples, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You know what that is? That's the Great Commission. And you know how Matthew ends his gospel? With the Great Commission. You know how Luke ends his gospel? With the Great Commission. And so when Mark chooses to end his gospel, he doesn't end it with the Great Commission. He ends it with the astonishment of the women and the disciples. But then notice this, verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And notice verse 10. And as they were gazing intently into the sky. You know, that's the same kind of language at the end of Mark 8. They're astonished. They're gazing intently. You say, what's the point? Here's the point. If you are seeing the risen Christ, a miraculous event, you saw him die on the cross, you thought he was dead, and you thought he was going to remain dead, and yet what God does is he raises him from the dead, he tells you about it through an angelic visitation, and then 40 days later, you are watching him physically, literally, ascend into the sky away from you. I would dare say that all of us would be astonished. There's nothing wrong with Mark ending his gospel by saying in verse 8, they were astonished. Just as there is nothing wrong with saying they were gazing intently into the sky. In fact, they must have been in that condition for such a period of time because another angelic visitation had to come and the angel said what? Don't look up into the sky. You better be busy about the things that Jesus told you to do. And what did he just tell you to do? You are going to be imbued, imbued with power from the Holy Spirit. You ought to be my witnesses, i.e., it ought to begin now. Stop gazing into the sky. Get busy. They're astonished, and I would be too. And if Mark chooses to end his gospel that way, that's fine with me. If they're struck by the ascension, if they're struck by the resurrection, if they're struck by the burial, if they're struck by the death, that's okay. 
I love what William Lane, one of the better commentators on the Gospel of Mark, he says this in verse 8 of Mark 16, the evangelist terminates his account of the good news concerning Jesus by sounding the note by which he has characterized all aspects of Jesus' activity, his healings, miracles, teaching, the journey to Jerusalem. Astonishment and fear qualify the events of the life of Jesus. The account of the empty tomb is soul-shaking. And to convey this impression, Mark describes in the most meaningful language the utter amazement and overwhelming feeling of the women. In other words, that's the only response to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That'd be the only response if you saw Jesus ascending into heaven. You've never seen anything like that before. No human language can give you any sense of how to respond to something like that. It's, it's suprahuman. It's beyond human endeavor. It's beyond human language. We don't know how to understand that. We'd all be sitting with our mouths gaped wide open saying, what is happening? Lane says, contrary to popular or general opinion, for they were afraid, that phrase that ends the gospel, is the phrase most appropriate to the conclusion of the gospel. The focus on human inadequacy, lack of understanding, and weakness throws into bold relief the action of God and its meaning. In other words, when, when God does a thing, your mouth is wide open. And if Mark wants to end with this soul-shaking, mouth-gaping reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then so be it. So be it. We don't necessarily need to add anything to that. No need to do that. You say, well, it wouldn't hurt, would it? Yes, because Mark was writing under the inspiration of holy, the Holy Spirit. He's writing Holy Scripture. The Holy Spirit believed that this was the way for the gospel to end. Now, if someone were to say, but I believe there's textual evidence or I believe there's good logical evidence to refute everything you've said, you know what? If you were to do that with me and if I were to study this longer than I've studied it up to this point, I might agree with you. And if that were to be the case, then I would say destroy all of the tapes of this message. Because I could be wrong. It's at least at this point in my study, I don't think I'm wrong. I just think that this verse, verse 8 of Mark 16, ends the gospel. If at some point we find out either in time or eternity that I was wrong, then I'll have to say, along with the other guys I read, you're wrong and so was I and we'll have to accept it as a part of Scripture. It's not that I'm playing fast and loose with it, it's just that as I study it, I don't think this is a part of Holy Scripture. Now, I do believe that the other Gospel accounts, as well as the book of Acts, give us everything that the latter part of Mark 16, verses 9 to 20 give us. So I'm not giving anything away. All these other accounts give us all of that information and more. Let me give you a third reason. Third reason. Matthew and Luke parallel Mark's gospel until verse 8. I think that's very significant. Matthew and Luke's gospel parallel Mark's until verse 8. Then they diverge from him, which lends to me credibility to the idea that this was added later. If you read Matthew's gospel, the end, chapter 28, you read Luke 24, I think you're going to find that they follow, but only up until verse 8. And then it's curious that they really don't follow him. Or, as I said before, if someone did add this, then their 
really adding what Matthew and Luke already said. In fact, this is another very, very important point underneath number three. When someone added the ending, as I believe, it changed the scene from fear and astonishment to something entirely different. You say, well, what is that? Well, look at verses 17 and 18 of Mark 16. It says, These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, everybody believes that that's obviously much, much different than fear and astonishment. You say, well, why do you bring this up? Well, in my judgment, that is not the experience of every Christian. And so I think this is probably reason to see this as a dubious text. Because notice what it says in verse 17. These signs will accompany those who have believed. Well, I believed. Have you believed? And do you have as accompanying your salvation and your witnessing to others so that they might have salvation? Are you accompanying in the name of Christ the casting out of demons, the speaking of new tongues, and the picking up of serpents? And if you happen to drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt you? <laughs> do you believe that? Well, you're wrong. Well, you're wrong, and I'll tell you why. Well, you're wrong. Well, you're wrong, and I'll tell you why. You, you, I've given you a forum, you give me one. All right? That is not my experience. I have never, as a believer in Jesus Christ, ever picked up a snake or had someone give me snake poison and drink it and not die. Have you? That's exactly what I'm saying. Let me, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. I've given you a forum to speak, now you give me one. If you were to drink that, do you believe you would live? Do you believe you would live? Answer the question. Well, neither am I. And as a result of that, I don't believe it's the, the believer's experience for anyone to do such a thing, not only to test the Lord, and that I agree with, but also to, to see that as absolutely part of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that right? If this is a part of the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ, then why aren't we obedient to this aspect of the message? If we are not responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we are not taking snakes into our ministries, if we're not taking deadly poison and drinking them, then we are not being obedient to the gospel message that says you ought to preach this kind of gospel with these kinds of signs to all creation. Now, if that's the case, then I believe we are all disobedient to the message if we don't do exactly what this text says. If we don't have snakes in our ministry, if we don't have deadly poison in our ministry, if we don't have tongues in our ministry, if we don't have demonic activity in our ministry in which we, as the agents of that gospel message, are taking this and using this to affirm the signs of the gospel message, then we're being disobedient to this mandate, this commission. And I would, I would pray tell that anybody who would be foolish enough to go into 
a ministry where somebody's handling snakes and drinking deadly poison, not, not only not to test the Lord, but to accompany the signs. This is what it says. These signs will accompany those who believe. It says they will accompany that. Don't tell me that. This is not what the Word of God tells us anywhere else. Anywhere else. I'll tell you what, I will talk to you after the service, but not right now. I've given you a forum, haven't I? I could have cut you off at any point, but I, I want to be a gracious man, and the Lord's bondservant must be patient when wronged, and I want to be able to show you that these things are not, in fact, the absolute apex of what ministry is in the New Testament church today. And I'll tell you why. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 28. Acts 28. Acts 28. Here's the Apostle Paul, safe at Malta. It says in verse 1, When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began to say to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now, some implications from this text are most important for us. Number one, other than this example in the book of Acts, there is no other example in the entire New Testament that speaks of this kind of snake handling or even by quote-unquote accident, a snake coming upon the hand of the Apostle Paul. There's nothing in the epistles. There's nothing in the rest of the Word of God that ever gives us any idea that this is the kind of ministry we ought, we ought to be involved in. None at all. If you would believe that this would be the kinds of signs accompanying every Christian, every believer, let alone every pastor, every elder, every church leader, why wouldn't there be for us any word in the epistles about this? Why wouldn't there be anything for us to grab a hold of? Believe you me, if I were mandated to, to be involved in the ministry of handling snakes, don't you think I'd want to have the confidence of the Word of God about how to do so? Don't you think I'd want to be able to say to whatever snake or whatever demon or whoever is inhabiting such a snake or such a person exactly what to do and exactly how to handle it. Folks, all we have here is one instance of what happened to the Apostle Paul and his response to what happened, and there's a good reason why it happened to Paul, and there's a great reason why it's not going to happen to me. The great reason why it happened to Paul was this. He was not finished writing the New Testament. In fact, he hadn't written anything as of that point. You know why God spared his life at this point? Because Paul wrote 12 or 13 epistles of the New Testament. He wasn't going to die right here. God wasn't going to allow anything to happen to him. 
God wanted Paul, who was Saul, to be a principal writer of the New Testament. And so God knew that if this were to occur, that nothing was going to happen to the Apostle Paul. And let me tell you the greatest reason why it's not going to happen to me. If I handle snakes, I'm a former snake handler. Right? I'm a dead former snake handler. Because you're right, it is putting the Lord your God to the test. I don't walk into a place, I don't have a church ministry where some snake comes down the front aisle and I show you how to handle such a thing so that the signs of the apostolic ministry of those men or the actual ministry of Jesus Christ himself, the signs that affirm that kind of ministry are evident in my ministry. I don't have to do that. Here's the evidence of my ministry, the Word of God, right here. This is the evidence of my ministry. And if I handle this accurately, then I believe that's all that is required of me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't have to affirm the signs of ministry, certainly not as, a, as an apostle, because I'm not an apostle. The apostles are those, according to Ephesians 2.20, who laid the foundation of the church. That's it. Once the foundation has been laid, there is no reason to lay again a foundation. In fact, if anybody attempts to lay a foundation, it is a false foundation, and they are not ministering as apostles. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I can see this is a bit different message this morning than I had planned, and now we're going for broke. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. You want to know the apostolic power of the ministry of the apostles? You'll see it right here, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now, if you knew what you needed to know about technical phrases in your New Testament, you would know this, that that particular phrase right there, the signs of a true apostle is a technical phrase that means the apostles themselves and no other. In other words, the signs, with the articular construction, the signs, it has the article in front of it, the signs of an apostle, and then those signs are actually enumerated there. Those signs are signs themselves, which means really generically other issues like being Lord in the disease, Lord in the demonic, and those representing the Lord, those signs where you're able to go to someone and they may have a demonic presence in their life and you, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, say, come out, and they come out. By divine mandate, you're either watching the Lord do it if you're a disciple of His in the New Testament or He's given you that power to do such a thing and you are then imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit to respond to such demonic activity. I have not been imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit to cast out devils. The New Testament doesn't tell me that. That is the foundation laid by the apostles. And you say, well, with what was that foundation laid? These very signs. That's the whole point. It gave credibility to the gospel message. It gave credibility to what the New Testament would later say, and that is this, that Jesus Christ and the apostles laid the foundation of the church, and that was accompanied by these very signs. We're not laying that foundation anymore. That's why these signs do not accompany our ministry. 
when it says here wonders, that means the ability to do things that are outside the, the, the natural realm. This is supernatural. This is like someone walking in the shadow of the Apostle Paul and being healed. This is somebody who takes the handkerchief of one of the apostles, and that handkerchief itself, because it has so much power emanating from it, heals another person. Even so much so that Jesus raised people from the dead, and he instructed his own disciples that at some point they may even be imbued with the power to raise someone from the dead. Incredible power. And if we think that we have this kind of power as resident within today as pastors, or if we have the even most mistaking judgment, most mistaking judgment, that there are apostles working today in the church, that is foolish. Foolish. There are people who might presume they have this kind of power, but when they come against Satan and his hosts, they realize as a human being that that power is far greater than theirs. Greater than God's? No. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But that is the power to deal with sin, not the power to raise someone from the dead. That's not what we're all about. We're about the very thing that continues from the line of the apostles, and it isn't this miracle-working, sign-working, transcendent issues. It is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a transformed life. That's it. I can't speak to you of raising someone from the dead, but I can speak to you of a person who has been transformed by Jesus Christ, and that's me. And if you speak of the transforming power of Jesus Christ as a result of the transforming power of Scripture, you can speak of the Holy Spirit's power. But when you try to say that that power is all resident within me as a pastor or you as a Christian, and you're able to do ministry just like the apostles and even like Jesus himself, you're wrong. You're wrong. It's just not so. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus said to the disciples and only to the disciples in Mark chapter 6. Look there. In Mark chapter 6, uh, excuse me, chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 13, Mark 3, 13. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. So far, so good. If I were to say of myself as one called by the Lord to be the, the pastor of a local church, if you were to say of yourself that you were called of the Lord not only to be a Christian but someone who is a witness for Jesus Christ, we too have been given that calling of God to go out and preach the good news of salvation in Christ. So far, so good. Verse 15, and to have authority to cast out the demons. Stop right there. That is a ministry that is reserved for Jesus and the apostles. You say, well, can't someone say today that they have that kind of ministry? Not in this way, not with that kind of power, no, sir. In fact, this is so evident, this is so evident in our Bibles that we dare not miss this point. In the little letter of Jude, which is right before Revelation, which is a book that speaks about false teachers and how we're to deal with them, 
and how we're to interact with demonic presences. This is what it says in Jude. You, you better not miss this. Look at verse 8, Jude 8. There's only one chapter, so we say Jude 8. Yet in the same way, these men, these false teachers, also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. You see that? You, you mean to tell me that as a human being, I'm supposed to go around and do battle with the devil myself? I'm supposed to go around and tell him what to do and what not to do? He's under no obligation to do what I tell him to do. I've told you before that I've heard about experiences and even witnessed some of them myself where this, this demonic power is far greater than any human power that I could engineer on my own. And you say, well, that's the point. It's not your power, it's the Lord's power. Not according to Michael the archangel. In verse 9 it says, when he disputed with the devil, he did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuked you. In other words, the Lord's going to deal with you. Folks, that's, that's the archangel talking. I don't have power over the demonic forces. Only Christ does, and when Christ deals with it, I'll let him do just that. That's, that's his work. And by the way, there are things happening in the cosmological level, in the, in the spheres that are high and above us that we don't have a clue about. We don't know what's going on in that realm. That's why the Bible calls it uh, the spiritual for forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're not in the heavenly places right now. We're on earth, and we're trying to do battle with our own sin, right? I mean, that's enough for us, isn't it? And does it not say that these forces are cunning and crafty, the, the serpent who is crafty and cunning. And does it not say about this one, Diabolos, the devil, Satan himself, that God deals with him? And isn't it true that you look at the book of Job and there are things happening in Job's life that Job has no clue about and his counselors have no clue about? And it's happening on a cosmic level between God and Satan and Job just happens to be the instrument that both of them are attempting to use. And guess what? When God attempts something, he accomplishes it every time. And when Satan attempts it, he can only do so at God's behest. And what did God say to him? Satan, you can do this to Job, but you can't do this. You can hit him with boils, but you can't take his life. That means that God deals with Satan. I don't. Don't you be go looking for a demon somewhere. You might find him. And if you find him, you don't have the power within yourself to deal with them. And what you should do is exactly what Michael the archangel says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord will take care of you, and you know what I would do? I'd run the other way. You say, well, is that biblical? Yes, it is. 1 Peter 5, what does it say? Resist the devil. Resist him. Flee. Don't be doing battle with demonic presences. You're going to lose. You're going to lose that battle. You let God deal with that. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they can take care of themselves. Well, I'm finished. <laughs> Maybe one more. Last argumentation, far afield from Satan and serpents, but very much to the point of Mark 16, 
the language, the form, and the style, and even the transition from verse 8 to verse 9 is decidedly different. You say, well, how so? Well, look at Mark 16 and we'll close. Look at Mark 16. Here's the closing of it. In Mark 8, it talks about fear and astonishment, and it's fear and astonishment based on Mary Magdalene and the women. But in verse 9, notice this. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to whom? Well, she's already been introduced to the story. In fact, she's been introduced three times. In chapter 15, verse 40, there were some women, Mary Magdalene. In verse 47, Mary Magdalene and the mother of Joseph. And 16.1, Mary Magdalene. And so if this were really a part of the continuing dialogue by Mark, why would he choose to introduce Mary Magdalene again when she's already been introduced three times in the intervening verses? doesn't make sense. Somebody added it. Why would she need to be introduced in 16.9? There's another reason. Did you know that there are 17 words in verses 9 to 20 that Mark does not use ever in his gospel account? In and of itself, it may not mean much, but when you look at all of the words Mark has chosen to use for 16 entire chapters, there are 17 of them that he's never used before, and he uses them in rapid-fire succession in verses 9 to 20. I think that may be somebody else and not Mark the author. In fact, we even know that Irenaeus, or Irenaeus mentions this longer ending in the middle half of the sec- second century which leads us to believe that since he's the first, that may have happened just before him, which means it wasn't really a part of Mark's gospel, and someone wrote it later, and Irenaeus was the first one to see it. Surely, if somebody else saw and wanted to comment on verses 9 to 20 before Irenaeus in the second century, they would have done so like they do all of the other parts of Scripture. Why is it so late that someone comments on this particular passage? Well, because it wasn't there. It was added later. Now, as we close, let me mention this to you. This is obviously not the way I wanted to close the message today. I wanted to be able to share with you some of these mountain peak messages, but we'll have to wait for next time, not next Sunday, but the following. And let me say this. As we close, I don't know who these two brothers are. I assume they're brothers in Christ. I have no reason to doubt that. But I also know that that kind of dialogue could have occurred outside of a preaching context one-on-one, and I'm saddened that that didn't happen. And I'm hoping that after this service, I'm going to be able to dialogue with them so that we can walk away saying, even if we disagree, we agreeably disagree. But one thing is for sure. In the providence of God, when something like this comes, you need to respond in such a way that if you hold tightly to your position, preach it for all it's worth. And if these, if these guys come up to me afterwards and they've got good, sound, logical, solid reasons for believing something else, I'm ready to listen, aren't you? And I want them to know that even though we've had a public discussion now, it's not something for which I shy away from. I love this. You, you can tell I love this, don't you? And I have every opportunity and every reason to believe that we're going to have the kind of dialogue where even if we disagree, we're going to walk away from this saying, even though we disagree, I have had the opportunity to be heard. And I've certainly said a lot this morning, and they've said a very little. And I'm going to give them an opportunity to say a lot as we close. That's the way we ought to dialogue. Not necessarily in challenging someone who's speaking publicly, 
but in that one-on-one time. If you have questions, if you have issues, we as a pastoral team are always wanting to talk with you. We're always wanting to be right next to you, shepherding you, helping you do uh, the kind of thinking that's clear and crisp regarding both theology and this particular book, our Bible, right? And if there's opportunity for you to want to listen to this discussion, then be my guest. We might have a holy huddle right down here at the end, all right? All right, let's pray together. Father, it's the noon hour. It's the hour in which we close our service, but it's certainly not the time in which we close our minds. Father, we have great reason to believe that in your providence you bring things to us so that we might consider them, speak to them, defend ourselves, respond in such a way that we have the opportunity, as do others, to see what your word truly says and to size up the various positions on which we stand. Father, I pray that the kind of dialogue that I would have with these men would be an irenic spirit. That means a a calm spirit. That means a spirit that speaks of civility. And I pray that you would give that to them as well. And I pray that you would give us the kind of dialogue that's not a wrangling over words, as Paul says to Timothy, not endless speculation, but that we would actually talk about what I believe we are talking about today, and that is, what is the Great Commission? What are we commanded to do? How are we to preach the gospel? And will there be signs that will accompany everyone who believes and what they tell others about? Will it be that I have the ability and the power to raise someone from the dead? Will I have the ability to speak in a language I've never known before? Will I have the ability to uh, cast a sickness out of a person, restore someone's limb, uh, the the ability to to have a, a snake bite me and not hurt me and not kill me with its deadly poison? Father, is that my ministry? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Are those the signs that accompany my gospel presentation? Lord, I'm confident it is not. But I'm also confident that you will lead us as noble Bereans to search the Scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. And I want to be open, Lord, to what you want to teach me through others. And I pray that these men would be open to that which I could teach them through you and your Holy Spirit-anointed ministry in my life. And I pray that you would work in us the kind of demeanor, the kind of love, the kind of affirmation that speaks of the Lord Jesus whose lips were pictures of gold and apples of silver. I pray that you'd give that to me and to these men. In Jesus' name, amen.